Welcome to episode 116 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is the first 40 miles. Today on the first 40 miles, we have three stories we want to share with you today, plus our takeaways from their experiences. Then on the Summit Gear Review, an inflatable hammock that may not make it on your 40 miler, but might find a way onto your weekend two mile out and back packing list. Next, we'll share the real recipe for a healthy, simple trail snack that almost everyone makes incorrectly. And we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom from a guy who has strong opinions about one piece of backpacking gear. All this, and that's about it, today on the first 40 miles. Over the past few months, we've been collecting stories, and we do this on our website. The link is thefirst40miles.com slash story. And as these stories have trickled in, it has been such a joy to listen to each story. Every story that comes in is different, every story is valuable, and every single story has takeaways. We love hearing people's stories. We talked about this on episode 102. We shared the top five benefits of sharing your story, telling your story. And, you know, it was things like stories connect us together as a tribe. Um, Stories teach us in ways that lectures don't. Stories just have so much, you know, richness in them that we can learn from and pull from and be inspired by. We have a new segment today in which we'll be featuring three stories from our fellow backpackers, and it's going to replace our top five list today. We'll share the story, and then Josh and I will kind of share what we learned from it, what we took away from it, and it's not going to be the same thing that people in our audience might take away from it. So it's going to be fascinating to see how these stories affect each of us. Let's jump right in. Our first story is from Annette. So here we go. My last backpacking trip was this past August, and it was a 100-mile section of the Oregon Pacific Crest Trail. I had been planning this trip for an entire year, looking forward to my 60th birthday, which happened to be in April. For my 60th year birthday, I decided that I wanted to do something epic to celebrate, and I chose a section of the Oregon PCT to hike. And this trip turned out to be everything I had hoped for. It was challenging and fun and beautiful and inspiring. I met wonderful people along the trail and had a great time learning the reasons they were hiking and getting to know them a little bit. Hearing their stories just confirmed all the reasons that I like to hike. While I was hiking the PCT, I kept a small journal each day and recorded the names of these hikers that I met what the trail was like for that day, how many miles we hiked, and my overall mood. One of the most memorable days on the trail for me, and the most challenging, was when we were hiking through the lava flows near McKenzie Pass. We were in between water sources for 17 miles and had to manage our water judiciously. 
The lava flows were relentlessly hot, uncomfortable to walk on, and seemingly never-ending. The sun beat down on us. There was absolutely no shade anywhere to escape the heat. The rock below our feet was unstable, making walking a struggle, and the rock radiated the heat back up at us. As we got deeper into the lava flows, I began to panic a little, and I knew I was in trouble. My instinct was to find a place to sit down and cover myself with my windbreaker to shield myself from the sun beating down on me. After about five minutes of deep breathing and a lot of self-talk, I got up and just kept walking to get out of this harsh, bleak, unrelenting section of the trail. Well, I made it. (laughs) And as it just goes to show you that we really are stronger than we give ourselves credit. That little five-minute break helped me to calm down, regroup, and gather my strength to continue. The PCT gives you a little bit of every kind of challenge along with great beauty. That's what I love about the trail. I came home from this backpacking trip very grateful that I had experienced the PCT and will never forget the thrill and the sense of accomplishment. I can't think of a better way to have celebrated the year I turned 60. Well, thank you so much, Annette, for sharing your story. Josh, do you have a takeaway from that? The most challenging experience was also the most memorable experience. Ooh. That's fascinating to me, and I've experienced it in my own life. We think that we go out seeking for the joy and the pleasure, and yet, I don't know, sometimes the most challenging things we faced in life end up being these cherished memories. We cherish them because we grew, because we became stronger. Like They they were good for us, even though they were super hard at the time. What I loved about Annette's story was that she trusted her instinct. And she had to trust it twice. (laughs) She took a little break during a really difficult part of the hike, sat down for five minutes to breathe and to think positive thoughts and to just regroup. But she knew she couldn't stay there, even though that was kind of her, you know, maybe primal instinct. She just kind of wanted to just collapse there. And she knew that maybe harder things were ahead of her. But she trusted that second instinct and got up and faced the challenge. And I love that she says that we're stronger than we give ourselves credit for. That is definitely true. Our second story is from Yvonne, who shared her backpacking trip in New Hampshire. I'm sharing my story because part of my first 40 miles was a trip up Tuckerman's Ravine on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. My husband has been doing this for over 30 years, and for some reason, when I was a teenager and met him, I felt like it was too hard for me to do. Now that I'm 51, I've decided to try things that I always thought I was unable to do. We started up Tuckerman's Ravine in October when we visited Maine for a family wedding. We were so excited at first, my heart couldn't slow down. It was so exciting. We got halfway up and there was a detour. There was some trail work going on. It detoured us to the right, which we had been told was a difficult trail, but it took us through this beautiful mossy area that almost looked like something from a fairy tale. I was really enjoying myself and these little Girl Scouts or or kids, high school kids and elementary school kids were running past us. And we were just enjoying the day until that faithful moment when I stepped on 
a rock that was a little bit angled, I slipped and immediately fell directly to my face without even having a moment to put out my hands. There I was on the ground, glasses turned sideways, dirt all over my face. My husband stopped to see how I was doing, and I backed up onto a rock and sat there and said, leave me alone, I just want to cry. I was so mad at myself. I'd finally got to this point in my life where I wasn't afraid, and something stopped me so quickly. I told him first thing, I want to go home. I want to, I want to go back down. I'm, I don't want to finish. And he said, hold on now. There's a stream up ahead where you can wash your face. And I said, wash my face. <laughs> my face, I guess, was covered with just black dirt. It was a mess. Luckily, I hadn't hit my face on a rock, but I did bang up my legs really badly. We sat down next to a waterfall. I took some beautiful pictures. Um, he went ahead to see how steep the trail was and it was pretty steep and we were just enjoying ourselves and it was starting to get late in the day. So we headed back down, but it wasn't until I got a chance to sit down with some family members who are dirt bags, they're um, peep baggers. They told me that it's okay. It happens to everyone that if you don't fall, then you're not really hiking. That made me feel so much better. And now I laugh when I think about the little girl that ran past me and stopped to ask me if I was okay and then went skipping over the rocks <laughs> past me. But now I know it's okay. I can do this. I can go back. I can fall again. I can get really hurt sometimes, although I didn't get hurt this time. And I'll still be accomplishing what I set out to do. Oh boy, when Yvonne said, leave me alone, I just want to cry. I just wanted to cry with her because I could feel all that, you know, embarrassment and frustration and how she just wanted to accomplish something big. And she just felt so, so frustrated, just shut down before she even really got a chance to get going. My takeaway from this story is that she saw this mountain, you know, this hike as something that was too hard. That was back when she was a teenager. And what do teenagers know, right? <laughs> but now she's 51 years old and she felt like it was time to conquer what she thought was too hard when she was younger. And my big takeaway from this is that she, she owned her age. And that was something that I saw in Annette's story too. These are two women that weren't afraid to accomplish big things at an age where maybe they thought, you know, am I, am I done accomplishing big things or can I still do incredible, um, challenging, inspiring, beautiful things? And I think they both answered that question really clearly. Growing up, we get this idea that all the big stuff that we're going to accomplish is going to happen in the first, I don't know, you know, 20, 30 years of our life. And then after that, it's just going to be autopilot and nothing, we're not going to grow, nothing new is going to happen. And um, their stories illustrate that that's simply not true. We can continue having new experiences and even overcoming things throughout our life right up to the end. So much of what surrounds us nowadays is um, what I would call curated experiences. Everything is perfectly 
safe, perfectly set up and organized, perfectly monitored. We get alerts on our phone if there's a traffic accident five miles ahead and we can route around it, you know, all of this stuff. And I think there's really something that we long for in that uncurated, raw experience. And that's what backpacking gives me. I can go out on the mountain and, you know, someone didn't go a few minutes ahead of me making sure that there were no rocks for me to trip on, no roots that would get in my way. It's completely natural. And there's something I love about that. And even if there is a big rock or big root to trip on, I love what Yvonne says. She says, I can fall again and I'll still be accomplishing what I set out to do. So thank you, Yvonne, for sharing your story. Our last story for today is from Elizabeth, who did the Emory Creek Falls Trail in Georgia. My name is Elizabeth, and my family and I just went on our first backpacking trip um, this past weekend, Martin Luther King weekend 2017. We live in Georgia, and we, we live north of Atlanta, about 30 miles, and we decided to go camping in the northwest corner of Georgia, which is part of the Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest, and we went in the Cahutta Wilderness area, and the trail we hiked and camped was Emory Creek Trails. The entire trail of Emory Creek Falls Trail is about seven and a half miles, but we ended up hiking in about three miles to the first set of waterfalls, and that is where we ended up camping for the night. You know, we had overall a great time, but we definitely learned a few things. One of those being, it's very valuable to actually contact the U.S. Forest Service if you're going on U.S. Forest land. As we drove up there, the way we decided to go was to cross over kind of a, a dirt road, 52 west, and head over and get to the trailhead that way. Well, there's another way to go to the trailhead, and it kind of takes you around in a loop, and it's a little, maybe like 30 more minutes, about 20 miles. And we have been to this area before, so we decided to go the more direct route. And we got about a mile from the trailhead, and there was this huge metal gate, and behind it, it was like trenched dirt so you couldn't possibly get through that area. And there was nowhere on any of the research that we did or anywhere did it say anything about that road being inaccessible. So that was a little frustrating because it definitely added some time on to what we already knew could be a potentially longer hike to find where we were going to camp. So we drove around. We went the other way. We did get to the trailhead. We got there about 1230 and the parking lot was packed, which was another thing that was a little discouraging for us because this is an area that is not well traveled typically. It's nothing like the kind of more eastern part of Georgia, northwest, northeast Georgia. As far as it's not a state park, it's not nearly as crowded as like, let's say, where the Appalachian Trail begins around Springer Mountain. So typically it is a lot more remote. So we got out and we got our gear on and this was our first time out with our family. And a lot of the gear we had was old from like 15 years ago or so. But you know, it, it was durable and it worked wonderfully well. The only thing we really replaced and we had recently for Christmas, my husband got a jet boil stove and we did replace our water filter. Um, we felt that it was important to have a newer water, water filter after doing some research. So again, it was my husband and myself and our two children, Hannah, who's eight, and Isaac, who's six. So we did start hiking. And the way that the trail is, it's really neat, Emory Creek Falls Trail. Um, you kind of go up and down and you follow the creek until you get to um, this crossing, the first major crossing, and you're crossing two creeks. It's Emory Creek and then Holly Creek. And there's kind of a peninsula in between those two. So when we were headed there, we crossed early on so that we only crossed kind of one major creek 
and there's a lot of rocks. And when we got there, we realized immediately the water was extremely low. Two years ago, we went to the same place and the water was much higher and it was a treacherous, <laughs> treacherous experience crossing this creek that was rapidly flowing and, and climbing on rocks, especially in January. So anyway, the water was much lower, so the crossings were much easier. So we crossed and we hiked in three miles. And within those three miles, you cross Emory Creek. Tra- Emory Creek. We crossed a total of 10 times. You ford that creek back and forth following the trail. But again, since the water was low, those crossings were relatively quickly. We kept going. We got to the top, and it was we had a wonderful, wonderful experience. The waterfalls were beautiful. Um, we ended up not camping kind of in the main area where the waterfalls were. Instead, we went over and went, came down back a little bit, but we kind of went off the beaten path and found a little spot right next to the creek. And we set up our hammocks, and we camped and um, learned a lot of lessons, learned a lot of little things about the boiling water and the water filter and the Enu. We used our Enu uh, hammocks to camp. Um, but, you know, down, hands down, it was a wonderful experience and my kids loved it. And it was a great way to start our backpacking experience with a lot of hacks from you. So I wanted to thank you and share with you. Well, awesome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for sharing your story. My takeaway from Elizabeth's story is that nature is volatile. Nature changes. It's sometimes just unpredictable and in some ways predictable. But um, she'd mentioned that she had done the same hike two years before and that the river crossings that she did were treacherous and the water was flowing rapidly. And that can be a really scary experience, especially crossing 10 times doing all of those water crossings. But then when she did it with her kids, the water levels were a lot lower and it sounded like it was a really great experience for her family. Elizabeth's experience illustrates that we learn a lot of little things as we go. It's just getting ourselves out there that gets us started and and exposes us to all the little things that we'll learn along the way. It really doesn't matter if your gear is old or you just, you know, you don't have everything perfectly how it would be ideal or whatever. You just get out there with what you have, you know, have enough to be safe, of course, and you start from there and you learn as you go. So thanks again to Annette, Yvonne, and Elizabeth for sharing your stories with other First 40 Milers. It can be a little nerve-wracking to turn on that microphone (laughs) and wonder if what's going to come out of your mouth is really going to sound right. But we'd like to encourage you to share your story. It can be so inspiring for others. And you know what? Heather is an amazing audio editor. (laughs) So don't worry about it have gaps, ums, and ahs, and whatever else, and Heather will fix all of that and make you sound absolutely amazing. Oh, you're too kind. But anyway, yeah, Josh is right. We would love to hear your stories. They're so powerful. They're inspiring. And we know that all of our other First 40 Milers will love hearing what you have to say. So where can people go to share their story? Thefirst40miles.com slash story. For today's Summit Gear Review, we will be reviewing the Wind Pouch Go Inflatable Hammock. When we went to the outdoor retailer's summer market last summer, these things were everywhere. Yeah, they sure were. Like along with regular hammocks. Yeah, regular hammocks were a big deal last summer. Everyone who previously had not made hammocks was making hammocks. And even if they didn't make hammocks, they were displaying hammocks in their booth just because they were 
going with the trend, I guess. But all over the place on the show floor were these inflatable hammocks sitting on the ground for people to just sit on. Yeah, they look like so much fun. And of course, they all come in fun colors. So what they are is a big pair of lips <laughs> that you sit in. Um, it's an inflatable ground-dwelling hammock. You know, it even kind of looks like a canoe kind of the shape of a canoe, um, but maybe a canoe that's gotten on board with America's obesity epidemic. Kind of fluffy, very cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Windpouch does have a disclaimer on their website that it's not a toy. But what do we call it if we don't call it a toy? Um, an outdoor recreational device. Okay. I mean, yeah. here's the thing. I don't think I would actually sleep in a wind pouch as my form of, you know, bedding for the night. Right, but you would definitely sit in it to read a book or just relax. Right. Um, I've even seen pictures of people rafting a river. Not like hardcore rapids, but like, you know, floating down a river in it or sliding down an icy hill on it. So it's really, it's a cool outdoor product that I think a lot of our listeners might be interested in. So the Wind Pouch Go is made out of parachute material. It's this hexagonal ripstop nylon, and it has an inner plastic bag, which is what you inflate. The fun thing about inflating this huge outdoor recreational device, or whatever we're going to call it, is you, you can't blow it up. That's just impossible. Just too much air. You'd pass out before it was blown up. So what you do is you open up the inner plastic bag and you run. And the whole hammock fills up with air and then you quick trap that air by doing this roll top motion. So once you have it filled up with air, you roll it down and you close it with a locking buckle. And I thought it was funny when you prepared the show outline, you noted in there that it has a durable water repellent coating on it. And I thought, wait a minute, why would something that's airtight need to have a water repellent coating if it's already airtight? But then I took another look at it and it's two layers. There's the plastic bag. That's the piece that's airtight. Then there's the nylon shell outside of that plastic bag because a plastic bag would be rather uncomfortable to sit on. Yeah. So you get the nylon shell, and the nylon shell has the DWR finish, which, yeah, it means it repels water, which wouldn't get through the plastic bag anyway. But it does also help it repel stains and stuff, you know, so it'll stay cleaner. Right. And I've heard of manufacturers using DWR not just to repel water, but more of a stain guard kind of thing, for sure. The Wind Pouch Go also has hanging mesh pockets, and you can put your water bottles, your books, your phones, tablets, whatever you want to stick in there. Uh, probably not your pocket knife, but, you know, this is more of a, a soft, we'll call it soft core camping instead of hardcore camping. Uh, it has reinforced seams and triple stitching so that it can support 550 pounds. So yeah, it really can support the weight of you and a couple friends. Also has a pillow headrest built into it, which is kind of cool if you want to take a nap in it. The Wind Pouch Go also comes with an aluminum stake kit so you can make sure that it doesn't blow away. <laughs> Especially if you're going to take this on a little beach trip, you want to make sure you stake it down really well. And then it also comes with a little carrying backpack. As far as utility goes, we talked about how to inflate this hammock. You just run with it open and then quick roll top it down. But you may need to kind of get good at that 
may take a few practices. And then if a lot of people are sitting in it, you might need to reinflate it a couple times because it does lose air. So practice, get good at refilling it with air. It reminds me of when we were first married and we had no bed. So we had this inflatable air mattress on our bedroom floor. That's right. <laughs> Every day it got a little bit worse at holding air. Yeah. <laughs> Until after a few weeks, uh, you know, it was useless <laughs> after a few weeks. I don't know about the wind pouch, you know, how long that's going to last. But, but yeah, point well taken. If you put a bunch of weight on it for a while, it's going to lose a little bit of air and you're going to have to kind of top it off again. For mass, this weighs three pounds, one ounce, which means it's going to be really great on a short trip, but maybe won't earn its keep on a longer trip. For maintenance, because this is an inflatable, it makes sense to buy the repair kit or at least have some things that you can use to repair the wind pouch go. The repair kit that they sell on their website is $13 and it comes with an inner plastic liner, some liner adhesive, and some pouch patches. So either you can put something like that together on your own or you can buy what they offer on their website. For investment, the Wind Pouch Go is $80 with a limited lifetime warranty. And as far as trial goes, you're all probably wondering, can I use the Wind Pouch Go in place of a traditional hammock. Yeah, and I already stated my opinion right up front. <laughs> you know, they say the Wind Pouch Go has a leak-resistant seal, and so they really say that it won't retain air for much longer than six to eight hours. So think about that when you're planning on where to sleep for the night. Do you want to end up with your rear end touching the cold ground? Are you okay with that? Do you sleep for six hours? Then maybe this is the perfect option for you. But I view it more as a luxury slash wow factor item. It's just so fun. I don't think it's really um, meant to be hardcore backpacking gear. It, it is a little bit heavy, but it's extremely comfortable. So easy and fun to use. And it does have that wow factor. Kids will love it. And if you have kids that maybe haven't gotten on board with backpacking, they're not too excited about it. This might be a fun thing to bring along that just kind of pumps up the fun factor. And if this is a piece of gear that you don't ever plan on taking backpacking because of the weight, it's still going to be a fun piece of gear this summer when you go to the lake or even if you just go on a day hike or a little picnic. It's just something fun to bring along. It will hold about two to three people. One of the funny things that we noticed is that when you get in or out, it causes everyone else to kind of bounce up <laughs> or sink down. Yeah, get up quickly and the person next to you is going to hit the ground <laughs> and come sit in it quickly and they're going to go flying right off and you'll hit the ground. Right. <laughs> but it's been a fun toy, you know, for us just for day trips, you know, just going out into the woods somewhere and it's kind of cool to have something comfortable and squishy soft to sit in. Right. Like there's some things that you would just never think about taking on a backpacking trip. And a sofa is one of those things that you would <laughs> never take on a backpacking trip. But this, you can think of it as a portable, inflatable sofa. For today's backpack hack of the week, chickpea trail snacks. Now, this is something that I've made in the past and I followed a recipe that I found on some blog 
And when the chickpeas were done cooking, it was supposed to be like this crunchy Frito-like snack, you know, this fried little chickpea. But it wasn't. It was chewy and it was not the texture that I was hoping for at all. So today we're going to share with you the secret to actually getting crispy little chickpea trail snacks that will be so much fun to bring with you on your next backpacking trip. So first, you'll want to get two cans of chickpeas or garbanzo beans and rinse them in a colander and make sure you shake the water off of them really well and then put them onto a parchment lined cookie sheet and bake for 30 minutes at 400 degrees and kind of shake the pan every 10 minutes. And then here is the secret that will make your chickpea trail snacks better than everyone else is on the mountain. And that secret is to toss the chickpeas in oil and salt after they're done roasting. If you toss them in oil before you roast them, it's like putting lotion on your skin right after you take a shower. It retains all that moisture, which is good for your body. You want that. You want to be like all, you know, not crackly and <laughs> you want to be nice and moisturized, but you don't want to have chewy, moisturized chickpeas. You want them to be crisp and crunchy. And so adding the oil after you've roasted the chickpeas, that's going to allow the chickpeas to completely dry out. And then the oil just gives it that really nice flavor. And the oil can then kind of soak into the chickpeas and the salt and the oil. It tastes amazing, as salt and oil usually do when you add them to food. <laughs> Funny how that is. Right. And one other note, if you're planning on trying this right after the episode is finished, I have tried this recipe with home-cooked chickpeas, like, you know, just cooking the chickpeas in a pot myself. And those ones don't get as crunchy as the canned ones do. Hmm. I don't know why. Yeah, you'd think it would be the same if you take dry chickpeas and you cook them up, let them cool down, and then spread them on the tray and roast them. They would dry out know. again, but maybe for whatever I, reason. Yeah, maybe if I dehydrated them instead of roasting them. I don't know. Hmm. I'll have to experiment some more. But anyway, this recipe is a solid two cans of chickpeas. Just bake them for 30 minutes at 400 degrees, checking every 10 minutes or so. Um, kind of shuffling them around a little bit and then adding the salt and oil and they will turn out perfect. And we'll have the recipe on the website so you can check there at thefirst40miles.com slash 116. We'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Colin Fletcher. This is from his book, The Complete Walker, uh, the third volume, which he wrote in 1989. He said, Although the vast majority of walkers never even think of using a walking staff, I unhesitatingly include it among the foundations of the house that travels on my back. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you've been on a backpacking trip, share your story at thefirst40miles.com slash story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles.
that's okay. <laughs> I'll pick up the pieces. Just kidding. I don't have anything either. <laughs> Our last story is from Elizabeth, who did the Emery Creek Troll Fair. <laughs> Trails. We'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from Colin Fletcher. He wrote The Complete Walker, 3rd edition, wait, in 1989. Wait, 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 wait. He's not our good friend on the trail? Oh, I didn't say that? No. Oh, no. I don't know who he I is, but... I said that the first time. I think if we he's met our him, good friend. He's our good friend okay. on the trail. <laughs>